Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, a podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports, and it's been a frenetic start to the new year. And of course, our immediate thoughts are with DeMar Hanlon, the uh, safety of the Buffalo Bills, just a frightening situation the other night on Monday Night Football, falling into cardiac arrest. And we're going to get into some of the governance issues that the league has been dealing with in the fallout here. But, you know, really just shocking scene. But hopefully now uh, there's been some positive reports and, and things moving in a promise direction. Absolutely, Eric. There have been some good signs and everybody's mind is on you know, the family and wishing them well and wishing him well. So we'll see how that plays out. So we're, as mentioned, uh, we're going to get into some of the governance issues and how the league has been sort of dealing with some of that. Some interesting developments in and around Candy Digital, a high profile NFT outfit that we've actually talked about before here on the podcast. And uh, a big deal out over in Saudi Arabia involving global football star Cristiano Ronaldo and surprise move in the next stage of his career that really could reset the compensation scale for top players in the world. But first, we're going to have a conversation with Len Perna. Len is one of the true veterans in the sports industry, and he runs Turnkey ZRG, one of the leading executive search firms for sports in the entire world. So we're going to have a conversation with Len, and then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down the news of the week. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Len Perna, Chairman and Chief Executive of Turnkey ZRG, a leading executive search and talent recruitment firm. Boasting more than three decades of experience in the sports industry, Perna founded and built the prior Turnkey Sports and Entertainment and then led the firm through a 2021 deal in which that entity search business was acquired by global human capital management firm ZRG to create Turnkey ZRG. And as a quick disclaimer, Chris previously assisted Len on that ZRG deal. Perna has overseen more than 1,400 executive placements, and most recently, Turnkey ZRG has played a key role in reshaping the senior leadership of college sports in the United States, leading efforts in which Charlie Baker was named president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. Brett Yormark was appointed head of the Big 12 Conference, and George Klievkoff was hired to lead the Pac-12 Conference. Prior to founding Turnkey in 1996, Perna worked for the National Hockey League's Dallas Stars and Detroit Red Wings and Major League Baseball's Detroit Tigers. Len, welcome to the program. Thank you. So gave a quick overview on your journey there with uh, with Turnkey ZRG and its predecessor, and we'll dive into that more. But I just want to start a little bit with your own career path. And you've done a lot of different things, and you've been involved in sales. You played a key role in helping American Airlines Arena in Dallas come to life. You've done a lot of different things. But in terms of really focusing and honing in on the executive recruitment space, how did that happen and what drew you there? You know, I had, as you said, I I'd worked in Detroit, I'd worked in Dallas as an operator, um, you know, running sports businesses and running those buildings. And I had developed a philosophy that you needed two things to be successful in sports. One, you needed the right people. And two, you needed the right information. So I founded two businesses on the exact same day, Turnkey Search, which I'm kind of still in today, and Turnkey Intelligence 
which I ran for a long period of time and then ultimately sold that business to MarketCast Holdings. But that was the philosophy that got me going. Glenn, as, as Eric mentioned, you uh, did a deal with ZRG a couple of years ago. I obviously was, was involved in that a little bit. But now that you've been as part of this broader platform over that period of time, what have been the advantages of having a sports boutique and a larger human capital business? And have you found there to be any disadvantages? No disadvantages. As a matter of fact, I should have done that deal 10 years earlier. I wish I would have done it 10 years earlier. I think the advantages are really three. Number one, having a company like ZRG and their platform allows us to cross-sell between, let's say, our sports group, the media group, the private equity group, uh, the consumer group. So there's a lot of cross-selling that goes on between the different practice groups inside ZRG, and that means more money, more revenue, more searches. So number one is it just makes more sense to be part of a larger platform, a global platform than it did to be, you know, kind of independent. Number two is they brought a lot of capital to the table and been absolutely terrific to work with. Anytime I need to hire somebody or want to go in a new direction, create a new swim lane, make an acquisition, they're standing there with both thumbs up saying, let's do it. Let's try it. Let's see if it goes. So that number two, I, I missed on that for a lot, a lot of years. And now I'm really glad to have that capital behind me. And then number three, let's face it, at some point, ZRG is going to exit because they're owned by a private equity firm called RFE. And when they exit, my equity will be paid off. And I never would have been able to get the multiple that ZRG will get because of ZRG's size and their global nature. They'll get a fantastic multiple that I would have never been able to get as an independent. So I think there are three great reasons to have done it, and I'm really happy I did. I want to focus a little bit more specifically on these college searches that I mentioned before, and you place some really big placements there, You know, two Power Five conference commissioners, the NCAA president, and those institutions could have gone in a lot of different directions. You've got competitors out there. Why do you think you won the business on each of those? And, and more broadly, where do you see your key differentiator from your various competitors? Well, I mean, just a slight correction. We've actually done three commissioners. We did the ACC commissioner, Pac-12, Big 12. So we did three of those. That's right. That's the last three. Plus, we just completed the NCAA president search with the, the hiring of Charlie Baker. Listen, I mean, it's been an honor to work at this level in intercollegiate athletics. It's different than pro sports. I think our competitive advantage and the differentiator and the reason why we were hired to do these is because we are actually the only firm that spans pro sports, college sports, media, and entertainment. There isn't anybody else working in college sports that does pro. There's nobody else working in pro sports that does college. So what they wanted when they were looking for a search firm wasn't a firm to just bring the usual suspects in, you know, for a commissioner search. They wanted a broad national, in some cases, even international global search to make sure they looked at every possible candidate. And they chose us because we spanned a lot of different places that nobody else spanned. And I think it's played out in such a way, if you look at it, with the ACC, Jimmy Phillips is a pretty traditional candidate, but he's a very progressive thinker. And that started us down the path towards progressive thinking in college sports. George Kliakoff at the Pac-12 was primarily a media guy. He ran Hulu. He was actually the first CEO of Hulu. He ran digital at Comcast. Deep, you know, he was at BAM. Uh, so you know him probably from BAM. 
he yep. had a deep media background and they really needed that media background. And then Brett Yormark at the, at the Big 12 is, you know, really kind of finishes off the trifecta in terms of, you know, taking college sports in a new direction. And they're all working great together. We're really proud of those. The most recent one with Charlie Baker is a grand slam for the NCAA because they're in a position where they needed somebody that could make some things happen in Washington, D.C. Not that they want Congress to run college sports. Nobody's talking about that. What they do need the people in Washington, D.C. to do is have a seat at the table and allow us to actually be a national association. If you have NIL laws that are different in every state, then all of a sudden you've got states that are legislating laws that affect college sports and it's not national anymore. So we have to have the same rules at play nationally. And that's why Charlie Baker is a terrific hire for the NCAA. Len, we've seen in professional sports, especially the big four leagues, that the insiders tend to get that commissioner job, whether it was Adam at the NBA, Roger at the NFL, Manford at MLB. Obviously, Gary's been around a long time in hockey, but clearly your last three placements in this college arena have been effectively outsiders from college sports. That's probably not a coincidence. Does this really get to your point about college sports wanting to have new blood, new ideas? How, how do you think that that is being viewed by the university presidents and the other people in terms of the, the desire to bring in outsiders, I guess, if that's if that's the right word? Yeah, I mean, I think they are outsiders. I think they're non-traditional people that are now in these jobs. And I think a lot of credit goes to what amounts to the university presidents that are on the boards of these conferences and certainly on the board of the NCAA. I think these university presidents took a hard look in the mirror and they realized that they didn't have the right skill sets within intercollegiate athletics right now. And that times have changed. The world has changed. Frankly, student athletes have changed. And so much has changed that they really wanted some new thinking, a fresh set of eyes, new blood to help navigate this new world. And more power to them. I think they made the right decisions. We had a hand in it. In the past, they had only hired search firms that would look at people in college sports. They'd look at athletic directors. They would look at college presidents. And so in a way, they were hiring search firms that predetermined the outcome. But by hiring us and opening up the aperture of the type of candidates you could look at, it wound up actually uh, creating more optionality for the boards, for these university presidents. And that optionality ultimately opened their eyes to new people and new skill sets that they had never looked at before. And that's why I think you're having the results that you're seeing. So as you did that and used that expanded focus, what were some of the skill sets that you were particularly looking for? Was it consensus building? Was it a certain competence in some of these NIL and, and emerging areas that you've mentioned? What specifically were you looking for in that expanded lens? Well, I think they were all different. So let me apply your question to just the most recent search, which is the president of the NCAA. Interestingly, we spent 12 weeks before we ever wrote the position description. And during those 12 weeks, we did a discovery process really, in effect, a listening tour to listen to, I think we did 300 people. Some of them were group meetings. Some of them were one-on-ones. But we talked to everyone in the intercollegiate space, presidents, athletic directors, coaches, trainers, SWAs, faculty reps, 
all the division presidents. We talked to all the committees. We talked to 300 people to say, where does this thing need to go? What skill sets do we need? In addition to that, we also had 10 focus groups that we set up from people outside of intercollegiate athletics, people from pro sports, people from media, people from tech, people from government, that we did these focus groups and said, where do you think the NCAA needs to go? And all of that discovery allowed us to write, I think, a really cutting edge position description and, and sit down with the board and say, here's what we heard. Here's where we think we need to take the NCAA. And so we weren't really acting in the role of executive recruiter in this search so much as we were acting in the role of a facilitator to help point the NCAA in a direction that was really being told to us by the community itself and people in sports, entertainment, media, technology saying, here's where you need to go. And ultimately, we were looking for a transformative leader that could bridge business and government. And we started looking for people who would run businesses that were in government-regulated industries. For example, Charlie Baker had been the CEO of uh, Harvard Pilgrim Health, and that's a regulated industry, healthcare. He was a CEO that turned it around. You know, they were in bankruptcy when he got there, turned it around to being one of the top health plans in the Northeast. And then after that, went on to become the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But he had the requisite experience of being able to deal with very complex stakeholder groups, figure out how to unify them and get them all on the same page and take them in a direction that was different than the direction they were going in and form a partnership between business and government. And that's exactly what we need to do with the NCAA. When switching gears from college to the overall sports market or sports marketplace, how strong is the job market today? Is your phone ringing off the hook with new searches or are companies starting to cut, cut back a bit in anticipation of a recession? What can you share about, you think, the health of, of the sports industry overall from a, from a recruiting standpoint? I actually think it's quite healthy, surprisingly healthy, given all the rest of the things that are going on with the war going on in Europe and this recession that they've been talking about now for months, the stock market's up and down. And yet, yeah, the phone is still ringing. Like We still have a lot of searches coming in. We're very busy. And I think other search firms are busy too. So I think that kind of bodes well for the industry that we're in. We're, we're in an industry that is, while not... Know, completely secure from anything that could happen in the world. I do think it's pretty secure from you know the basic ups and downs of the stock market. I think it's secure from the basic ups and downs of a potential recession. It feels like it's still busy to me. I mean, I'm we're at Turnkey. We're all still pretty busy right now. There's a lot of discussion, as you well know, out in the space about diversity and inclusion and what sports can do to advance that. There's been some progress at various levels and various organizations on that front. Uh, but what is the state of DEI as you enter 2023 here? Is, is the progress on that front where you want it to be? How do you assess all that? I'll just, you know, I can't speak to the whole industry. I can speak to turnkey. If you look at all of the folks that we have working at our firm, Turnkey ZRG, we are more than 50% diverse inside our own house. And I think as a search firm, you have to take care of your own house first before you can advise clients on what they should be doing. So we've got our house in order inside Turnkey. Then next, our numbers in terms of we track, you know, how many diverse candidates 
there are in each slate of candidates that we present to clients. And that number of diversity in our slates is up about 116%. So we have more, well more than 50% diverse candidates in our slates that we're presenting. Then I think the next thing we need to look at is whether or not search firms are really pushing clients to push forward candidates that are diverse. And we push hard on that. And we've had a lot of success on that. And we've had a lot of diverse hires come out of that. So we definitely keep track of that. Diverse placements is way up. I think we just have an ad in the Sports Business Journal this week coming out that shows some of the diversity that we have in the placements from 2022. So just from the standpoint of turnkey ZRG, we feel like we're doing our part on three levels, in-house with our own people, secondly, in the slates, and third, pushing for diverse hires. Len, we have a number of listeners who are probably thinking about getting that next role or switching careers or switching jobs within the sports industry. What advice at a high level would you give to people who want to reach out to you and let you know about their availability or their interests? You see lots of candidates and executives. What advice would you give to those folks who want to make a change? I mean, we get dozens and dozens of potential candidates reaching out to us every single day saying that they want to do something different. January seems to be a time of year where people are really thinking about making a change. I think the best piece of advice is to really look carefully at the impact you've had in the roles you've had and make sure that impact is appropriately represented and accurately represented on a resume, not a bio, but a resume. The difference between the two is, you know, a bio is just sort of what you've done. A resume is actual quantitative KPIs on the impact that you've had in an organization. And I think every single bullet point in a resume should start with a number. And it should be very quantitative in terms of growth, impact, year-over-year statistics, your ability to drive growth in all of its different forms at an organization is what you bring to your next employer. And if you're not thinking about it like that, I think you do need to look at it like that in order to put yourself in the best position to get the next great opportunity. Inverting Chris's question, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see out there among job seekers? Well, I think people need to have a little more patience. They tend to look at their own background and think that they're the best candidate for any any position that's out there. And I think people tend to be a little bit unrealistic about where they should move next and what what they could do next. And so I I see a lot of candidates that are kind of out over their skis looking for big, big, big jumps in in scale and promotion and responsibility. And then they get in those roles and struggle. So I think they should just have a little bit more patience as they curate their career and look and make incremental steps where you can learn something new at each place, get a little bit more responsibility, different responsibility, round yourself out, stretch yourself but not try to take it in a too big of a chunk where you put yourself at risk for failing. I think it's a little bit of a game of shoots and ladders. And if you get into a position and you fail, you got to go all the way back, back down the chute and kind of start over again. So just a little bit more patience with people that curate their stuff. I mean, I guess, you know, the question I'm kind of hoping that you would ask me is from the client side, from the employer side, you know, what are the things that they need to be looking for in a really tight talent market? And I I think the advice that I'm giving to clients these days is really understand how hard it is 
to get a perfect fit, how hard it is to get people to relocate from one place to another, um, you know, how hard it is to do a search confidentially without names leaking out. Like all of these things are very difficult to pull off for high level searches like, you know, presidents, CEOs, commissioners, all the way down to even mid middle management. Don't take the talent marketplace for granted. It's tight. It's difficult. And picking the right search firm and picking a search firm that's got rigor has really tight processes that really has a lot of experience in, in knowing how to run a search so that you don't get names leaking out like you do with the Chicago Bears. You know, having that, you know, Kevin Warren's name leak out and other names leaking out. That's, that's horrible form, you know, for a search firm to be running a search like that. So, so don't take, don't take it for granted. If you're a client looking for talent, make sure you get the right search firm. Well, and beyond just thinking about the next job, when you have young people, whether they be in college or, or just out of college, they want to have a career in sports from a career development standpoint. What do you tell folks? I'm sure you get those calls, friends, sons, and daughters, and people, alumni from Michigan or whatever, you know, want your advice. What do you do? And, and those are, what do you tell people in terms of more career development? How do you get ahead? I mean, it's really all about, you know, having the team first. I think if you're thinking team first and you plug yourself into a team and your, your job there is really do whatever it takes to help the team win. If you're on the marketing team, if you're on the sales team, if you're in the finance team, whatever team you are on. Try to think about it from the standpoint of team first, as opposed to your own career or, or whatever's going on with your own set of responsibilities. You know, take a step back and think about how can I advance the team? I don't see a lot of that now. I see a lot of people really focused on sort of their own place in the team. And yeah, you need to do your own job. And I think that comes first, but you also need to look around the team and see who needs help. How can I do some extra work? How can I support my teammates? And I think if you do that, you will be rewarded. I know you will be rewarded because employers are looking for team players. It really does make a difference. You can't do anything yourself these days. You got to do everything as a team and teams win and teams lose. So look at it as a team. And that's, that's the advice I'm giving to young people. Well, a lot happening in and around Turnkey ZRG. We're going to continue to track that across all of the sport business platforms. But for now, we want to thank Len Perna for spending this time with us. Thank you for having me. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Len Perna again for spending that time with us. And turning our attention now to the news of the week, we uh, mentioned the situation up top with uh, Bill Safety, the DeMar Hamlin, and his life-threatening injury on Monday Night Football last week and we've had sort of an interesting situation emerge as a result of that the the medical prognosis has been very promising no neurological major damage and uh doctors indicate that he's uh, really making remarkable progress there but from a governance standpoint it's been a real interesting test for roger goodell and seeing how he tries to sort of balance player wellness physical and mental and then trying to keep the operations of the NFL on track. There's still a season to finish, lots of competitive ramifications. This Bills-Bengals game had a lot of implications in the playoff seating and such. 
and they sort of came up with an interesting solution in which that Bills Bengals game is not going to be finished and there's a potential for a neutral site AFC championship game if it turns out we've got a situation where the Bills are facing Kansas City who they were vying with for top seed in the AFC and similarly Cincinnati if they were to face Kansas City in the AFC title game that game could also be moved potentially to a neutral site and Chris, you were previously at the NFL, and I know you weren't on the competition side of the house here, but it's an interesting, again, governance study here in terms of trying to serve a lot of different needs simultaneously and some in conflict with each other and try to, again, balance that player wellness with the competitive integrity elements. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. There are a lot of considerations here. First and foremost, I think the league, the owners, the Players Association is focused on Hamlin's recovery, on his health, so. and, and, and appropriately so. And I think that to the extent there's any good news out of this at all, it was that the medical staff, first responders, were really on the case quickly. Remarkable uh, job. Apparently did many of the right things or all the right things. And so that maybe gave him you know more of a chance to recover, which, which is, again, very encouraging. In terms of thinking about now the playoffs, the competitive dynamics, the way I saw them, at least explain this publicly is they really kind of took it step by step. Okay, this game, the, the Bills and the Bengals, whether that was played or not was not going to affect who was in the playoffs. You know, that's one issue that they don't have to necessarily worry about. Then it comes down to, well, what could that game have, you know, implicated? Certainly home field advantage, certainly, you know, should they play the game or not? What kind of dynamic would that create for pushing back the season a week? And I think what they've tried to do as as the NFL usually does is find the right compromise the right center of gravity to balance all of these interests and do it in such a way that there is consensus among the players association and and the owners and that's why today as we do this recording the nfl owners are meeting in a special session to ratify expectedly some of the suggestions that roger has laid out so i think the consensus building the thoughtful step-by-step approach to this is what i think will get them to the right place Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, again, trying to sort of balance a lot of those various things. You make a really good point in terms of trying to sort of compartmentalize this because really fundamentally at issue first and foremost from a competitive dynamic is who would get home field advantage and you don't want a situation where sort of the, you know, fans are crying foul or whatever. And you sort of try to, again, really try to take each element in its own lane that there was no need necessarily to play this last game in terms of an in or out situation. And you really just boil it down to that last little piece. The other element of this that probably shouldn't be overlooked is that the other major consideration on the table was delaying the start of the playoffs or at least the AFC track of this and potentially removing the bye week between the conference championship game and the Super Bowl. And that creates a whole other set of issues. You run into a conflict with this completely redesigned Pro Bowl, which the league has spent a lot of time on in terms of reimagining that event that's going to happen the week before the Super Bowl. You've got all sorts of corporate sponsor implications and so on and so forth. And, and then you got a ripple effect on the other team. So again, I think you make a good point in terms of really trying to distill and isolate each individual situation at its true essence and then deal with it in the most thoughtful and sensitive way possible. That's what they're certainly attempting to do, Eric. And as you noted, if they were to delay uh, the playoffs a week and you know play this game and then push everything back, then that affects 
not just a couple of teams, that affects many teams competitively, in addition to what you said in terms of the sponsors and some of the other kind of business considerations. What I, again, come back to is this decision or this approach wasn't come together on a Monday or Tuesday of this week. They spent some time thinking about it. They had, I'm sure, many conversations, but they are making the decision today, Friday, so that as teams go into the final week of the of the season, they are understanding what their games are going to mean or not mean. So again, it was really deliberative process, you know, made quickly in terms of decisions, but not made too quickly. And I think that's again what the NFL tends to do very well is is really have the right process in place to make these decisions. And this is one of those things where it, it ended up being sort of a unintended or unforeseen benefit of the whole COVID situation at the worst of it during the 2020 season that the NFL, like a lot of other leagues, had to be very nimble and think on their feet and, and react very quickly in the moment and try to do so in a thoughtful and fair way possible. And there were a lot of reschedulings that particular year, particularly as there were team outbreaks of the virus and so forth and games played on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and a lot of unusual things. And I think flexing those muscles and it, you know, again, that was only two plus years ago where they were at the worst of that. Some of those lessons learned, I think have actually come to the fore here in terms of having that, operational nimbleness to be able to think creatively and also again as we're saying distill some of the foremost issues at their essence and then and then deal with that rapidly and in the moment yeah no they again i i think they've done a good job overall what i wonder sort of more broadly and i've seen a lot of media coverage on this is how this injury and this you know it, it, it is a rare situation but how it affects the broader view of football uh, youth football, high school football, college football. There has been talk about obviously the injury risk in professional and, and football really up and down the line. This is not a concussion situation. It seems to be, again, kind of a rare circumstance, but there has been a bit of talk this week about whether this injury adds to some of those concerns or whether this is seen as such an outlier that, that, that it really won't affect the way parents think about their kids playing football or the sport overall. Yeah, and some of that is unfortunately dealing with a situation where we don't have all the information with regards to Hamlin. There were, you know, some initial suggestions that this was a, a rare cardiac event where he took the impact in such a force at such a time in his cardiac rhythm and in the right spot where that led to the cardiac arrest, you know, as opposed to something, you know, more strictly inherent to football itself because we've seen these kinds of things where you know a, a baseball player gets hit in the chest with a pitch at just the right time and in just the right spot and in just the right moment you know and we've seen this in other sports as well that it may be something along those lines but again we don't really know and we haven't had a full sort of debriefing on exactly the nature of Hamlin's medical situation here and all the causes and everything. Again, we've got good news in terms of the recovery path here, but those kind of long-term impacts, we just are not going to really have a full sense of that until we really get a full breadth of understanding as exactly the cause and outcome of this player's particular situation. You're absolutely right, Eric, but as you know, that hasn't stopped people from talking about it. <laughs> Speculation frankly, is still happening. But I think that you know this is not a situation where a player got hit in the head, had a, had a bit of a head injury, and then just kind of came back in the game and, and some, you know, some irresponsible decision that somebody, this, this is truly, uh, it seems like a, a one in a million circumstance. And as more of the facts emerge, 
I think people are better able to calibrate whether this is an endemic risk or whether this was just a, a crazy situation that happened. And uh, it, it is really not uh, something that, that people ought to necessarily be worried about on a day-to-day basis. But we'll we'll see where that analysis comes out. Now, separately, one of the another positive thing that's come out of this whole situation is again just really shows the power of sports to unite people in a way that really nothing else in society really can, given all of our other lines of division. But to see how not only the rest of the teams in the NFL, but teams across all of professional major collegiate sports elsewhere and all of the expressions of thought and concern and prayer for Hamlin to sort of see that just so galvanized across the entire industry, you know, really remarkable to see. Yeah. And it was not even just the sports industry. It's something now that is just being talked about by people who aren't sports fans. It's being covered as a mainstream news story. And again, it is one of those things. It's a kind of a human condition discussion. We are all hoping that he gets well quickly. We understand the severity of it. And it is a great kind of coming together as people really hope and pray for his recovery. Well, much more to come on that, and particularly uh, as the uh, Bills look to make their march through the postseason, that will help to keep this story uh, front and center. But turning our attention now to the world of NFTs, we talked a lot about this and the rise and fall of that particular segment of the space, and we had a very interesting set of developments here were Candy Digital. This was an outfit that Michael Rubin with Fanatics came together with with some other partners to create a new NFT entity uh, nearly two years ago. And a lot of hope and optimism initially when that entity started and obviously having the power and the acumen of Michael Rubin and Fanatics front and center of this gave this company a big push. They've, they're have partnered with Major League Baseball. They've done a lot of other work in this space. Well, Michael Rubin moves fast here. You know, Rather than waiting for something to maybe potentially turn or whatever, he's out. The uh, Fanatics has, has sold its majority 60% interest in this company. Some of the other founders and, and some new folks have come in. There's been a new Series A1 round to recapitalize the, the company, and they're going to be moving forward in that new structure. But again, just it was a very notable thing to have somebody, again, with the stature of a Michael Rubin, say that I'm out. And there was a letter that he sent internally, you know, very sobering to read, really, and basically just coming straight out and saying that he had some real concerns and doubts about NFT's ability to exist as a standalone business. You know, from his perspective, he needed to see it integrated with physical collectibles or, in the case of somebody else, integrated with other some other form of business. Business, you know, but a very notable step here from Michael Rubin and some sobering language. Yeah, I mean, I think Michael is seen by most in the sports industry as a brilliant business person, has built an enormous company. And so when he says, I'm out of this space, it certainly gives a lot of people pause about what the future of the NFT space will be. Again, there's still major players, Dapper Labs, so rare, Autograph, yep. a, a number of big companies that have raise significant amounts of money. Uh, I'd say many of the companies in the space have, you know, focused not just on NFTs now, they focused on utility, on gameplay, on combining, you know, other elements. So I, I think there is a recognition across the board that NFTs just as a speculative asset are not where it's at. Uh, what was a little bit curious about some of the, the comments Eric you just made and, and Ruben's uh, statements is that he he seemed to be saying, look, NFTs as a standalone don't necessarily make sense. They really make more sense in combination with 
physical collectibles, but he's got a physical collectibles company and in tops and all of these other things. And, and again, why don't those things come together? Well, maybe it has to do with they own 60% of the NFT business where on the top side, I think they own, you know, probably all of it or, or close to all of it. Right. And so maybe there was a little bit of a kind of a conflict of interest in terms of how that all was going to come together that prompted this to some degree. Yeah. And it's sort of interesting, not only that, but, you know, Michael Rubin, he's this big established guy now, and he's got this very large multi-billion dollar business, but it was very much of a startup sort of mentality where you hear a lot and you obviously have experience dealing with company founders and your own Mm -hmm. ventures in your prior life. That The notion is to fail fast. That If you see something is not working, make a decision, make it quick and don't sort of belabor the point and sort of that that speed is sort of what jumped out that it was almost sort of a a startup sort of founder mentality as opposed to somebody with a more mature business like he now has well i think yeah you're right it was a fast or relatively fast decision cut your losses move on and i i think part of that could be driven by when you think about fanatics more broadly I, i believe their last valuation for fanatics kind of macro was in the 30 billion dollar range right this company was valued, I think, at a roughly a billion and a half that the NFT company and they own 60% of it. So let's say it's at the time was a billion dollar stake. That's a billion out of the 30. So that's meaningful, but that's like 3% of their total value. And if they're thinking about, you know, raising their next round of capital or ultimately going public or other optionality that fanatics may have, the not having the overhang of a, of, a, of a major NFT business, which just might sour the market or kind of taint the story you know having that off the books is probably a part of the reason that he did that yeah and again you you also have to remember that he's got his betting operation that he's looking to really ramp up in this new calendar year as well and you know as he's dealing with regulators and and trying to get that part of the business stood up i think you've raised a very good point that you know maybe we're talking less than five percent of the overall sort of fanatics empire here but if that complicates the bigger picture again probably well suited to just cut the losses and move on yeah and obviously there's in addition to the challenges of the nft world there's been the related crypto bubble and all the regulatory issues that have surrounded that so Again, that could factor into it. What I would also point out, again, from a fanatics perspective is they have succeeded in these businesses like the licensed apparel business. I'll put the trading card business in this category as well, where they can go buy exclusive rights to teams, leagues, properties, and really become the dominant force in that space. In the NFT marketplace, that really wasn't possible because the rights had been so fragmented. There's a little barrier to entry in terms of people creating NFTs, not necessarily the greatest of of NFTs, but even individual athletes could go do that. So there wasn't really the same opportunity to dominate the market, in my view, as in licensed apparel, as in trading cards. I think betting is going to be equally a challenge because, as we've discussed, there's 25 betting operators in the state of New Jersey and others. So again, we'll see how Fanatics uh, can navigate some of these lines of business that may be a little bit different than its core, but still leveraging its, you know, 85 million users or whatever the case may be. 
So much more to come on that front here, but uh, again, very interesting development. Turning our attention now to the world of global football, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, you know, household name in the space, one of the icons of the sport. And as he was looking to make a decision on the next phase of his career, he was getting inbound offers from all over the world, many different European leagues, Major League Soccer, on and on the list goes, ultimately signed a deal with a... uh, Saudi team, Al Nassar, and the deal reportedly with guarantees of $75 million a year and a potential for him through various commercial arrangements with the club and its owners to reach $200 million a year. And, you know, we don't necessarily talk a lot about individual player signings. We got in there and judge a few weeks back and, you know, certain things sort of come down the pike. But this one, again, again, sort of really rises to the top here on a couple of different levels that not only are we just reaching yet another new realm in terms of player compensation at the top end of the scale here, but also really just signals Saudi money, Saudi wealth. We've obviously talked about the the Saudi backing of Live Golf and all the implications there. This is another big marking post here where you've got this big oil money coming in and really making big steps to reshape the sports industry. It, it does illustrate, Eric, that that big money can be disruptive to these leagues and these teams in the sense that the players will sign. We saw that with Liv. Uh, we're now seeing it with Ronaldo. We're seeing a number of other ways that Middle Eastern money more generally is having potentially a big impact on sports. We had the Qatar World Cup, obviously, but uh, we then had another announcement a few weeks ago that sovereign funds can invest in NBA teams. Yep, we talked about that. We saw the announcement of Jeff Zucker's uh, new vehicle with uh, Redbird and, and an Abu Dhabi firm. So we're seeing some real transformation here in terms of capital from the Middle East coming into the sports world that we've never seen before to this degree. And I, I think there are a lot more people who are now trying to figure out how do I get in on the, on, on the action here than maybe six, eight months ago when there was a lot of the controversy with Liv and people weren't sure you know, how that was going to play out or reflect. I, I think now the, the dam has burst or the gates have been opened, and I think more and more people are looking to get involved. And to that end, as those gates have opened, what this sort of also further appears to signal is that some of the humanitarian civil rights concerns that have sort of surrounded this whole discussion, they continue to be sort of at the side here and are not really significantly blunting any of this commercial activity that we're talking about that you know certainly all the concerns around live golf and their backing they're they're continuing to try to plow forward the, the world cup obviously happened in qatar this deal with ronaldo happened and on and on and any of the discussion that may be had in parallel vis-a-vis human rights in saudi arabia and so forth that just is not appearing to stem the flow of any of this activity Well, the more athletes and prominent parties that get involved with some of these funds and some of these countries, it sort of makes the water safe for other people to do it. When it was just live golf and there was somewhat of a, well, they're not even going to be able to get a TV deal. Our sponsor's going to step up. Is that going to be sort of a problem? Again, live still faces its challenges, no question in some of those areas. But I do think that even in the last six months in people that I talked to in the industry, they're thinking about you know Middle Eastern investors and partners uh, much more than they were you know a year ago. Again, it's just really uh, I think cascaded here. And as this, and particularly with regard to the Ronaldo deal, what does that do to sort of reshape the the face of European football? There's been a 
historically a fairly clear pecking order in terms of Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, and so forth. But does that does that Saudi league, if they can get more players of that caliber, does that reshape the situation? And do over time, do we start to think about the Saudi top flight league in a different way and, and start to at least start to think about them maybe along the lines of a, a Dutch league or a Belgian league or something in that tier? It certainly could, Eric, if they're able to attract the kind of players that they seem capable of attracting. And also, I believe the Saudis are trying to get the World Cup in 2030. Right which would also add more awareness of what is happening there in terms of soccer, obviously called football. And so I think that would just be another kind of accomplishment and another opportunity for awareness that could really happen within this decade. Well, much more to come on that front as well. But as we come towards the end of another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a look elsewhere in the space and see what else is catching our eye. Chris, I will start with you. Eric, I was very intrigued to see the, the news that Vince McMahon appears headed back to a role with WWE, some type of executive chairman role to help with their upcoming media deals and other strategic opportunities. As we all know, Vince had stepped away from the WWE over the last several months, but it appears he's on his way back and he may be back with some former executives, uh, Michelle Wilson. George Barrios, who now run a company called ISOS Capital, but it appears that Vince may want them back on the board. And so potentially big changes happening at the WWE over the next couple of months. Yeah, so many interesting layers to this story. Not only do you have the Vince comeback story in and of itself, but Vince McMahon himself pushed Wilson and Barrios out almost three years ago, and now we've sort of come full circle and they're coming back onto the board here. But the other half of this is that since Vince stepped down six months ago, his daughter Stephanie, co-CEO Nick Khan, Stephanie's husband Paul Triple H Levesque, They've done a phenomenal job with the business. And even Vince himself admits this that, you know, the stock is up by 40% last year. You know, great quarterly numbers, expanding global profile. They're bringing an event to London this summer, one of their top premier events, Money in the Bank. On and on the list goes. This is a very healthy and growing business. But now you've got a situation where Vince has come in and say to maximize the value to the shareholders and take advantage of all this opportunity in front. I'm the only guy who can do it. And he, has the power as the as the dominant shareholder those juxtapositions are very interesting yeah, this i think there'll be more twists and turns of the story as we go forward eric but again i don't know vince personally but i obviously have followed and you know he has built this business it's been his life for for decades now so i understand his interest in in getting in the middle of of big decisions that are upcoming but there certainly will be some drama as we go forward on this from my standpoint, I'm keeping an eye on John Henry, the lead owner of the Boston Red Sox and their parent company, Fenway Sports Group, and sort of what it says about retail politics in and around team ownership here. You know, it's been a very interesting few months for John Henry and the Red Sox. They were sort of having a very quiet off season, not a lot of major signings. He actually got booed at the Winter Classic at Fenway Park here uh, on January 2nd. And then soon thereafter, he completed a big deal with Raphael Devers of the Red Sox, 300 31 million dollars and that may sort of calm the storm for a while but there's still a lot of angst among red sox fans about john henry and his stewardship of the team and if you look at this his entire 20-year run 
you know, four titles, broke the curse, not only saved Fenway Park, but, you know, really injected a whole new realm of life into that facility. He's the best owner the Red Sox have ever had, and it's not close, but there's not really any focus on that. It's very much on the here and now and what have you done for me lately and sort of how John Henry kind of navigates that going forward, even after you know, things have calmed down a little bit with this Dever signing. It's going to be very interesting to see. And John himself has got, he's got sort of a more aloof personal nature. He's not somebody out in the cameras a lot, that sort of thing. But it really, to me, it says a lot about kind of team ownership and the retail politics around it. Yeah, John would not be the first team owner to face some of that pushback when the team doesn't win a World Series or doesn't perform as well as the fans would like. So I think that is kind of comes with the territory. Although, as you note, the Red Sox have been very successful in many ways. I do wonder, Eric, whether an owner that starts buying more properties and you know outside of the home market and, and sort of more broadly is building an empire, whether at some point that also creates some angst among the fans. You know, we've seen a lot of owners that really focus on their own market. They own one, two, three teams, maybe a media business. But now we're seeing with Fenway really building a much broader portfolio of businesses outside of the region. I, I wonder if that has some a small effect as well. I think it's very much part of the story here because they now own the Pittsburgh Penguins. They're looking at an NBA team in Vegas. Obviously, you have all the situation going on with Liverpool and what may happen there. And I think that's very much part of the story that a lot of the Red Sox faithful believe that Henry's kind of taken his eye off the ball, no pun intended. Yeah. So again, you know, a couple of wins tends to cure it in the short run, a good player signing. But at the end of the day, it's it's kind of it's there's, there's a good part of this, which is the fans love the team that much that they get mad at the owner when things right. aren't going right. perfect. So it's kind of a nice check, I guess. Yeah. Apathy yeah. is death and they are not yeah. apathetic. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.